This is a selection from Emily Post's Etiquette, 1965. Chapter 81, The Teenager. (laughs) Teenagers from 13 to 19 have one thing in common. They apparently like to be sloppy. This applies not only to themselves, but to the rooms and possessions. It doesn't seem to do much good to remind them that they will be more popular with the opposite sex if they have their hair combed and their clothes clean, nor are they interested in keeping warm and cold weather if no one else is wearing a coat. Shoes seem to be a forgotten item of clothing in the summer, everywhere except in the largest cities. <laughs> what? My feeling about this general attitude is that They'd be allowed to dress as sloppily as they please during vacations, in their own homes, on the beach, or at picnics. But at school, at meals, on any excursion with adults, on all public conveyances, and at all social functions, they must be properly and neatly dressed. And then I also wanted to touch on the bit about teenage girls especially. Teenage girls need less urging to fix their hair. In fact, most of them spend interminable hours under a hairdryer. What they do need is guidance as to style, length, becomingness, and good hygiene. Extreme style should be avoided in the younger teen years. The simplest hairdo currently popular is generally the most becoming. As they get older, they will want to experiment with more complicated arrangements, and the only restriction should be that they refrain from becoming too extreme, for such styles invariably make a young girl look cheap. You're listening to Poor Man's History. My name is Tyler. My name's Jody. And we are back in the saddle mm-hmm. with a couple stories. Yeah. Uh, an episode or two ago, I did the story of a nameless hitchhiker who was referred to as mostly harmless. Uh, yes. Who hiked the Appalachian from New York to Florida and then was found dead in a tent. Yes. And the... Facebook kind of internet investigation that sprung up trying to figure out who this guy was. Several people messaged me after listening to that episode and wanted to engage in conversation with me about it, or they wanted to tell me that there had been new information found, and I was like, do not tell me what it is because I promised you I would not look it up, and then I told them that they also could not look it up. So it's very important that you tell everybody. Well, I have an update. And I'll say right off the bat, uh, that first story I did was from Wired.com. And this article I'm going to read now is also from Wired. It's from the same author. Oh, uh, okay. Whose name I don't have, but it's very, um, it's hard to tell a story disconnected from this author's. I'm going to be you know, reading his words, essentially. published an article about Mostly Harmless the day before the presidential election. More than one and a half million people read the story and looked at photos that other hikers had posted. People sent me theories about who he could have been or what he might have been doing. He had a long scar on his abdomen and readers diagnosed potential illnesses. He had perfect teeth, which suggested good dental care as a child. Others dug into Da Vinci Code level clues. He had signed in at hostels as Ben Billamy, which with some creative effort, could be read in reverse as, Why me, Lib? (laughs) Uh, And then it goes on a bit about a bunch of tips he got, people who 
uh, thought they knew who he was. Dead ends, follow-up phone calls. Uh, might be this guy. Oh, okay, that guy, former classmate, still alive. Okay, moving on. There's a brief bit here about a Louisiana woman who sent a photograph, said that mostly harmless was the illegitimate son of her drug-dealing uncle. There's another tip from Virginia from somebody who said they knew the hiker and that his name was Daryl McKenzie. This Daryl guy she knew uh, was in like a bowling league, said he had terminal cancer and planned to hike to his death. Daryl had supposedly said, quote, I came into this world without a name and I'm going to go out of this world without one. Whoa, that that's the most puzzling part about the story. I don't find it weird, really, to want to leave a very uh, non-existent footprint doesn't feel weird. But the fact that you are found in a tent, I st- okay, I've got to let it go because you're going to say what's... Um, so of this tip, they uh, this writer, he told his editor, uh, they found a Facebook page for a Daryl McKenzie that hadn't been active since 2017, the year Mostly Harmless started his trek. No way. McKenzie had just four Facebook friends and his only posts were photos of the wilderness. I contacted one of the friends and explained that a hiker had disappeared and that his name might have been Daryl McKenzie. I'd written about a story and posted it online. She burst into tears. Oh no, Daryl. I told her that I was sorry to have broken such terrible news so suddenly. She could take her time and call me back whenever, if she even wanted to. Two minutes later, my phone rang. Quote, that's not Daryl. The photos in my story didn't look at all like her friend, who was indeed a hiker, but was alive and well in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, damn. Whoops. Daryl. Meanwhile, the dedicated Facebook hunters kept going. On the trail, Mostly Harmless had carried a notebook full of ideas for Screeps, an online strategy game for programmers. And so, a group focused on digital forensics went through the accounts of every possible user who had been on Screeps up until April 2017, the date Mostly Harmless had given other hikers for when he'd begun his journey. They had a bead on a user named Vajor. Meanwhile, a woman named Sahar Bigdeli had arranged for one of the country's leading isotope analysis to study the hiker's teeth in hopes that clues could be discovered about where he had lived. A genomics company, Othram, which I think we talked about, had taken his DNA and started to do cutting-edge genetic analysis to identify him. Is that like where they go to the ancestry sites and whatever? Uh, Collier County had sent them a bone fragment. They had extracted the DNA and begun searching for genetic similarities among people in a database called GED Match to build a tree of potential relatives. Yeah. Like when I do old cases from the 20s or the 30s, even like when you get to the 70s and the 80s and somebody's found unidentified, it's like, is there nobody being like, where's my blah, blah? Like, did he have no... Anyway, um, we'll, you know, we'll get into that. But I also think that you're underestimating the ability of a person to be like, all it takes is a few family members to die or or to cut you off. And yeah, suddenly, like, you really are kind of like a person with no, like, links to the world. It's kind of terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they learned that the hiker had Cajun roots, that his family had come from Assumption Parish, Louisiana, and that there were family members with the name Rodriguez. In the middle of December... Photographs of Mostly Harmless found their way to a group of friends in Baton Rouge, one of whom called the Collier County Sheriff's Office. This friend, who asked to be referred to by her middle name, Marie, told the detective that she knew who the hiker was. Marie recognized the face, and she knew all about the scar. The 
handwriting was familiar, and the coding style too. At 5.30 the next morning, my phone rang. It was the same person who had first sent the tip in August. We have a name, he said. Vance John Rodriguez. He texted two new photographs that looked just like mostly harmless. The nose was the same, the ears, the eyes with dark circles around them. The mystery appeared to be solved. But then I thought back to my phone call to the friend of Gerald McKenzie. Someone was going to have to tell his family now. Someone would have to tell all the people who missed him. And also this mystery is not solved. What the fuck was he doing sitting in a tent emaciating? I started reaching out, first to Marie, then to other old friends and girlfriends. I and others worked to confirm his identity with the first press story about Rodriguez appearing in late December. This was just this last December. The puzzle was formally solved today when Othram confirmed that the DNA of the hiker matched that of Rodriguez's mother. We'd all been telling ourselves stories about his life, but the man whose journey ended in the yellow tent wasn't who anyone thought or hoped. If he had been trying to escape something, it was himself. Okay, so we're going to get into this guy's life. (sighs) Wow. Vance John Rodriguez, a.k.a. Vajor, was born in February 1976 near Baton Rouge. He had a twin sister and an older brother. He told friends over the years that his father had deeply hurt him, but no one I spoke with seems to be clear exactly how. When he was about 15, according to his friends, Rodriguez headed off into a field with a gun, intending to kill himself. He fired into his stomach. But then, as he lay bleeding to death, he decided to live. The surgeries that followed were the cause of the scar that had so intrigued the Facebook group. Later, he would tell friends that he wanted to be buried in that field. At 17, with the consent of his parents, Rodriguez was emancipated by a Lafayette, Louisiana court. At 17? Marie, who lived with him as a friend for several years in his 20s, says he was angry that his parents had institutionalized him after the near suicide. Quote, he would not talk about his parents except to say, fuck them, Marie recalls. He wrote to his parents and sister in early January, two weeks after they heard the news. His sister wrote back bluntly, quote, my family has no comment. After graduating from high school, Rodriguez enrolled in the University of Southwestern Louisiana. In the school's computer lab, he came to know a man named Randall Godso. They became off-and-on roommates for the next five years. Occasionally, they would go out and party. One friend of Rodriguez's wrote that she remembers him coming to her dorm and playing Nothing Else Matters by Metallica on the piano. Quote, I could be quiet around him, she wrote, and it never felt awkward. Godso and Rodriguez were both computer nerds, with Rodriguez taking it to the extreme. Godzo remembers his roommate playing games for 18 hours a day and shutting everything else out. Quote, he would go through huge bouts of depression. He'd go for a year without smiling or being nice to people. Rodriguez, according to his roommate, had cut off all contact with his family. Quote, he was depressed and moody his whole life, but I needed a roommate and we got along okay. Godzo adds that he doesn't remember Rodriguez ever showing any interest in spending time in the wild. Quote, outside was between the car and the building. So Rodriguez doesn't graduate, but he has all these computer skills. He ends up finding a job at an e-commerce company in Baton Rouge called Shopper's Choice, where he was recognized by many as the most talented engineer on the team. The 
company's code base is still filled with notations of VR for code that Rodriguez wrote. Marie, who works in IT, told me, quote, He's a crazy good coder, except he would always code everything the hardest way possible. Kind of like you hired Rembrandt to paint in your bathroom. You know it is going to be lit, but over the top. I'm just listening. He ate once a day, often pizza from Walmart or lasagna from Pasta Kitchen. He wore black jeans, a black shirt, black trench coat. He had long, dark hair, almost down to his waist. One day he cut it all off and gave it to Locks of Love. He attended Dragon Con. He appeared to suffer from some mental health issues, but according to Marie, he refused conventional medicine. Quote, he self-medicated with drinking and chocolate, she says. He would go on what Marie and other friends called outages, where he lay immobile for days, refusing food and all human contact. But eventually he would snap out of it. He wore his sadness like an extra layer of skin, Marie recalls, but she adds, I truly dug his imperfectly perfect solitary singular self. So then it goes on to a relationship he had in Baton Rouge, a five-year relationship uh, that ended badly. When it was over, the woman he had dated wrote on her Facebook page, quote, apartment, $9.50 a month, bills $300 a month, standing up to the monster that beat you up emotionally and physically for five years, priceless. After Rodriguez was a identified as the hiker, the woman's mother commented on Facebook, quote, this man was so abusive to my daughter, he changed her. Oh my God. <sighs> this is <clears throat> unexpected. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming you're not done, obviously. Um, boy, I don't, yeah, you can just keep going. Yeah, there's a lesson we can all learn, I think, about... Uh, I think I told you once about the phrase, uh, milkshake duck. It was an internet... It, it was a tweet, a, a joke that comes to encompass this thing we do as people on the internet now where some nobody becomes famous suddenly. Uh, yes. And, it, it, like, is the hero of the internet for a day and then somebody finds out they're racist. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it's like, oh, that's right. Like, we keep looking for heroes and finding human beings. Uh, yeah. Like, this... About like it's a it's this person that nobody knows who he is like. So then there's this like just what did we expect? <laughs> overwhelming effort. Yeah. And I guess people disconnect for their from their families for a variety of reasons. So the fact that that happens doesn't necessarily mean you're the reason. Like you're the bad one. But I don't. Let's just say this feels like he was a very tortured p person. And abusive. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mean to suggest that like, hey, he's human. We all abuse our girlfriends. I don't know what kind of person, like, what did any of us think we were going to find? Like, <laughs> Not this, though, because I was wrapped up in the romance of it like everyone else. I've been dying to know. And now I want to cry. In 2013... Rodriguez moved to New York City. He'd met a woman whom I'll call Kay in an online chat room. Kay, who asked for anonymity because of the public obsession about the hiker, was then finishing college in upstate New York. They traveled back and forth to visit each other, and as their relationship evolved, they decided to both move to New York City and live together. At first, he was romantic and sweet, but soon he started to clam up and shut her out. 
Quote, if something upset him, he would stop talking to me completely, which can be lonely when you share a 500-square-foot apartment, she says. He kept working remotely for Shopper's Choice for about a year, then quit and lived off his savings. He and Kay went out maybe once a month, she recalls. She asked him if he w- wanted to travel, and he would responded that he didn't need to go anywhere because he could easily look at pictures online. The city was filled with constant motion, but that seemed to render him catatonic. Quote, I think it made him even more lonely to be in a place with so many people and no one to connect to, Kay recalls. Gradually, the dreary relationship got worse. Kay recalls, He did open up to me about previous women that he knew and how he treated them. They should have been red flags. At one point, he locked me out of our apartment. After I got out of the shower without clothing, because we started arguing about something I can't even remember, that wasn't the only time he locked me out. On a Saturday night in September 2016, Kay was injured when a terrorist set off a bomb on West 23rd Street in Manhattan. Quote, I had pretty bad PTSD, to which he hated caring for me, even kept a dated log of every time I needed help, to the point where he left me outside in the dark, knowing that at the time I couldn't be outside alone or be in the dark without panicking. She recalls before adding, and this is only the light stuff. Uh, around this time, according to Kay, Rodriguez also threatened to dox her if she ever left him. Oh my god. So that winter she moved out. He reached out to Godzo, who remembers worrying that Rodriguez would commit suicide. In January 2017, Rodriguez wrote in a Slack channel for Screeps users, quote, I'm mostly harmless for now. In mid-April, he posted his last message in the Screeps Slack and headed into the woods. He seems to have left in a hurry. When his landlord opened the door to the apartment... Eight months later, he found unopened food along with Rodriguez's passport, wallet, and credit cards. So, the next 15 months we have detailed. Spends the next 15 months hiking south. According to friends who saw the photographs of him on the trail, he looked healthier than ever. He was smiling. Everyone liked him. Yeah, that was part of the reason why I wanted the real story. Because your account in the first story was... You know, all of these people talking about their encounters with him. And I so desperately wanted that to be the person. (laughs) Had he become a different person? I asked Kay this question. Quote, he was personable when you first met him. But after spending more time with him in an intimate way, his personality completely changed. The people on the trail didn't spend years with him to see how he handled ups and downs. Maybe he was good at code switching and hiding the person he was behind doors with me. Or others, she said, I think it just hurts that he was capable of being this person with complete strangers. But when it came to us, he couldn't even be a decent human being to treat me or my body with any dignity. Some musings here about, you know, he was free. No one's looking for him. His ex-girlfriend, like, doesn't want to see him. Cut ties with his family. Uh, His friends in Louisiana just thought he was in, quote, a long-ass outage. Everyone assumed he would show back up. I'm surprised somebody like this has friends. <laughs> Sounds like a miserable person. Yeah. <sighs> when I wrote about the mysterious hiker in November, I ended the story with two questions. Why did he walk into the woods? And why, when things started to go wrong, didn't he walk out? Rodriguez's friends have a theory about the second question. The timeline of the last few months is unclear, but he appears to have been stuck and starving, 
maybe at the same campground where he was found on July 23rd, 2018. By the time two hikers stumbled upon his tent, his body weighed 83 pounds. He had money, though, and he was just a few miles from a major highway. Maybe his inexperience caught up to him, and he was outmatched by the bugs, the snakes, and the humidity. It's more likely, his friends suggest, that he had one last major outage. I know that when he had to deal with anything, he would just lay down and sleep, Kay told me. I feel like that's what happened. He would ignore his problems and sleep until it was gone. The thing about mysteries is that they are most exciting when you're trying to solve them. When you can write down your own theories, fantasies, or fears. What do you do when the answer to the mystery isn't what you thought or hoped? I'll give you a reason not to like me, Rodriguez had written on Slack, describing a kind of move in Screeps two months before he went into the woods. The mystery of mostly harmless captivated and inspired thousands of people, yet it is hard to look at this story with anything but sadness. The boy who raised his hand to get help from a passing truck and whose body still bore the scar of that Louisiana field had grown into a man who didn't seek help as he died in a Florida swamp. A man was able to disappear in no small part because no one was looking for him. A man was harmed and maybe harmful, and then he went into the woods and became mostly harmless. God, there are certain things that stand out to me. I mean, obviously somebody who shoots themselves in the stomach in a field at the age of 15 has something going on. And I don't know what institutionalize means when, you know, he's born in 1976. So I'm not exactly sure what course of treatment he was put into um, if he had a bad experience and that's why later in life he refused to seek professional help for his issues that he then self-medicated with alcohol and chocolate man i i have such a wide range of feelings about this person like i'm so empathetic to somebody that at such a young age nearly died you know emancipates himself at the age of 17 and then just goes on to just a, a path of ruin for anybody that he encounters and like to have outages. I understand that's a thing that occurs for people, but when you normalize it that way, you know, like, oh, we just figured he was having a really long ass outage. Like, oh my God, this is somebody who really needed help. You should not be having long ass outages. Yeah, it seems uh, like for a year. Impressive isn't the right word, but like stunning that somebody could make it that far into their adult life with on and off roommates being like the closest thing they have to like any like human connection. Like he seemed really cut off for a very, very long time. And someone smart enough to be like a prodigy programmer. And smart enough, I guess, to like when he started dating this most recent girl to be like, here are the things I did to my previous like girlfriends, like probably understood that he was toxic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very complicated situation. Is it okay if I say that after I hear all of this, like, I am okay with his ending? I, I agree somewhat because I, I feel like it makes me more comfortable 
sort of sanding off the the rougher edges of like his past <laughs> as, as it sounds like there are a lot of abusive people like that who had rough childhoods and never got the help they needed and they turn into abusive adults you know if it's going to come to a head at all like it usually hurts somebody else like very few of them do this where they just just <laughs> hover just rise off the earth and like disappear into like an 11 month weird adventure where he's kind of this this fictional like fairy of the forest that just moves and then just lays down and dies like it feels like a penance for what he did it's sad that he died but maybe maybe this scale is is evened out a bit that yeah and that's like how it ended. and i was just going to say that maybe when he went on this adventure then he got to experience some happiness and distance and freedom from himself but then i am reminded of what his most recent ex-girlfriend said like oh he could always be charismatic when the stakes are low you can be very likable and charming for a, a set period of time and so it's not so much that he was like truly like when you have things going on going into nature isn't just going to magically make you an amazing person yeah that's a good point and yeah like he, maybe he didn't become a new person that's just who he was to like everybody except the few people who knew him long enough to yeah wow <sighs> you're, you're looking for a more solid answer at the end there yeah there's still a lingering like, was it intentional? Did he just withdraw and then, like, got so weak that there wasn't anything to be done about it? It seems very convenient that, like, oh, he used to do this thing where he would lay down and just sleep for a week. I don't doubt that that's true, but, like, that's a really simple answer for how did he just die in a tent alone? He Like, he did one of his oopsies and then he... Okay, I cannot get off of this, and I have to. I'm I'm going to... Move my brain elsewhere to Kate Blood. Kate Blood. If you look behind you, there is a faraway photograph of a gravestone. Mm-hmm. And then here is a... So that blood, that's a Christian name. That wasn't like her rap name. Okay. This um, is a series of stories from the um, Post Crescent in Appleton. And the first story, of course, came out on October 30th of 2015. Okay, Appleton. Kate Blood, who we see actually has a gravestone in Appleton. This isn't like a mythical, like the Hodag or something. Kate Blood has been called an axe murderer and a witch. Regardless of details, the modern day implications of the Appleton urban legend remain the same for those who dare visit Blood's off-the-path tombstone at Riverside Cemetery. I like to ask that about a lot of people when it comes to Wisconsin history. Is this person a Hodag? Yeah, I use like, I use it in sort of like, Hodeg is encompasses Hodeg something. Hodeg is a way of life. Yeah, it's a. Yeah, it's like, is this the Beast of Bray Road? Is this the Mothman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you it, when when you spill coffee on your shirt and then and then your car doesn't start, that's that's the Hodeg <laughs> in the air out there among us in Wisconsin. That's just the Hodeg at work. Hodeg. <laughs> This is not that. This is a person. This is a person. There have been claims of an apparition. It's been said those who approach during a full moon 
might witness blood oozing from the face of the family stone on which her name is engraved. Judy Galt, cemetery administrator, said blood's final resting place is among the most visited there, having been included in books on haunted locations and wild tales circulated on the internet. There's intrigue, she said. There's mystique. The genesis of blood as an urban legend is a mystery. So I just want to quickly say that this is going to be the first in a little series of stories I'm going to do of these like urban legend, like true things, maybe that become kind of urban legend. Like Kate Blood was a person. She has a gravestone, but then it's going to, you know. Mm-hmm. All right. The annals of history couldn't address claims of supernatural activity at her final resting place, though the record does speak of a woman far removed from the dark tales for which she's become known. So Kate Blood was the daughter of an influential settler and one of the first children born in the young community in the mid of the century. That's Appleton. Frank Anderson, an Appleton musician, artist, and author, and a man with a zeal for early Appleton history, says blood is a woman maligned. I will always call her the first daughter of Appleton, Anderson said. The people loved her, and they'd be stunned by what we're doing today. Blood's tombstone stands a distance from the remainder of markers for Appleton's early residents. Finding the grave from within the cemetery requires a short walk down a slope trail that's chained off from vehicle traffic. It's on a Fox River bluff in a wooded area that feels separate from the pristine grounds. Some approach from a trailhead on the Riverside, Riverside portion of Peabody Park. Chad Lewis, a paranormal researcher and author from Eau Claire, whom I've actually gone on a ghost investigation with in my early 20s, couldn't pinpoint origins of the Cape Blood tales, though they first caught his attention several years ago. I love stories that that are a little bit unusual. Ghosts, the blood oozing, Lewis said. It's a little bit different. It stands out. It's fantastical. A common story says blood murdered her husband and children with an axe before committing suicide. Though a glance at the stone is enough to debunk that, her husband, George M. Miller, outlived her by several years and had remarried (laughs) after she died. (laughs) In another version that has been passed from generation to generation, she was murdered by her husband. Lewis said witchcraft and murder are common themes in urban legends across the country, but in another sense, the tales associated with blood break from the mold. Normally, there's something about the legend that rings true, Lewis said. The real Kate Blood was affectionately known in life by her nickname Kitty. Her father arrived as a Methodist volunteer, became a prominent community member, and his family was held in high regard. Kitty Blood's husband was an editor of the Appleton Post. Her father, Henry Blood, played a significant role in Appleton's founding and was among four who laid out the plots for the village and for Lawrence Institute, which is, I'm assuming now Lawrence University, which is in Appleton. He built the first shanty in Appleton and was named Grand Chute's first town chairman. He was a hands-on man and leader, whether laying out the community's grid or pulling tree stumps from what we know today as College Avenue, Anderson said. Kitty's passing was a tragic event and word spread quickly. The Appleton Post stopped the presses to include an announcement. She was just, she was stricken with tuberculosis. 
She traveled south to stay with family in a warmer climate, which is what a lot of people did. Right. She soon died in Lawrence, Kansas, and her body was brought back to a grieving community by train. She left behind a daughter. Her full obituary printed in the January 10th edition of the Appleton Post ran longer than many of the news stories of that day. She lived for others and for those she loved. No sacrifice was too great, which involved their happiness at Red. So that's the story. And it's not like terribly long, but it is really... Like Chad Lewis said, how a lot of those urban legends, there's like a grain of something that's true. And as far as the blood oozing, there doesn't seem to be any documentation of that. And I don't know if it's because her name, last name was Blood. And I so would then say it's, almost certainly that's where it comes yeah, from. Her last name is Blood. The positioning of the gravestone is like this separate thing. You know, I mean, the time. The era in which she lived and died, you know, when you read the 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 dates on the tombstone, are definitely not like 1500s witch, you know, like the the height of the oh she's a witch because she's a like a a woman who speaks her mind or something right. like that, you know. Um, so I don't really get where it comes from. She was a very beloved person, and. It's really bizarre how it's tumbled into this. There's no weird. Uh, nothing more about how how she went from that to. No, and there's just uh, you know when you look up, there's nobody that has this documented. It's not like here's a video of this thing crying blood or or whatever. There's nothing like that. So it's just. I guess people just like to create weird stories and it becomes like a like the Haunchyville thing, like a weird place for kids to get scared. I was say, did you look up maybe a Appleton High School A V club did a I didn't know. <laughs> we were in hit, we were in her woods. And then I feel bad because at the same time now I want to go and see her gravestone. I mean, not you know, because I'm expecting a f- I mean, maybe I do want to go on a full moon just to see what will happen. I remember having the same kind of feeling about Haunchyville in that I, it was hard to pin down like what was real and, and where maybe some of these rumors started. Yeah. And in this case, it's even more pronounced where it's like, oh, this is a beloved like community figure that all it took was like a one generation. generation of family dying. And then high school kids are like, do you see that blood gravestone yeah. up in the woods? Yeah. Yeah, and then it made me feel bad when, you know, that historian talked about, like, how sad everybody would be to see where, like, you know, how the memory of this person has, like, slipped into this weird urban legend thing where now it's like, oh, she's an axe murderer yeah. and a witch and all of this stuff. Yeah, it also makes you think that the degree to which you might want to leave something behind after you're dead or be remembered like that can all go up. <laughs> all it takes is one bad last name and some fucking <laughs> shitheads in high school. And like everything you worked for can be erased. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, yes, there's, and I think every state, you know, sometimes I feel like our state is unique in the number of weird urban legends and all. And I don't, 
think that's probably true. But you know, we've, we've got so many weird things. Some of them are rooted in like maybe somebody really died there. And it's hard to be dismissive of some people's stories, depending on what it is and what they saw, because I don't want to write off experiences like that. I feel like I can confidently speculate that probably this is just some very weird urban legend that started because yes, there was a a woman who died young and she had this last name that lends itself to spooky stuff. And so, yeah, there's the, if you ever heard the legend about Roger Dixors, really crazy urban legend, uh, great guy, uh, which is a shame. Um, but they say, you go out there on a full moon. <laughs> <laughs> so am I to expect that another story next week about the Highway 12 Hitchhiker will be about a guy who's really great and like gave water to everybody who picked him up? No. Okie dokie. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. When you spill coffee on your shirt and then your car doesn't start, that's just the whole day at work.